open our Bibles to Acts chapter 2. It is with a big smile that I have been looking forward to preaching through these last few verses of the chapter. I've titled our study, The Happy Church Family. Because when I read through these verses, they do make my heart smile. You'll see what I mean. Let's, let's read, beginning in verse 41. So we, get, so we get a little running start into the verses that we'll study today. Acts 2, beginning in verse 41, says, So then, those who had received His Word, that is Peter's sermon, were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. That's what we looked at last week. And here's our text for today. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need, day by day continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now you know why I smile when I read those verses. What a joyful group of believers. There isn't one element in those verses that we don't look at and think, that's exactly what we would want for discovery. That's what any person would want for their church family. Every point here is a home run. And these verses are the portrait of a truly happy church family. This is the role model of the early church. And this crucial text has most certainly been recorded for the purposes that we find in 2 Timothy 3.16. For teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. What we just read are inspired words of God and they are highly profitable for our church family today. And if you ask me, Chris, well, what do you pray for, for your church family and for your own faith? Well, I can guarantee you, today, my answer would be, I pray those words that we just read. Those verses would be the answer to my prayers for my own faith and for us as a church family. I read those verses and I see healthy priorities. We see the commitment level. The unity and generosity and happiness and growth of the church. And we think, what more could a person want? That is the dream church family. But then I realized, no, that's not a dream. That's a reality. That's exactly what God did for those believers in Jerusalem. That's the fruit of the Spirit in full bloom. Love, joy, peace. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We find it all in Acts chapter 2 here. And we know that God still loves doing that kind of work in and through His people today. As I heard one pastor put it, what we're looking at in the end of Acts chapter 2 is an ordinary church. An ordinary church exactly as God meant for it to be. There's nothing fancy here. There's, there's no hype. This is just Spirit-empowered godliness in the lives of ordinary and sincere followers of Christ. Let's pray and then we'll enjoy these verses in some more depth. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the, the, the vision You give us through these verses of what You love to do through Your people. We pray that whatever has been recorded here for our instruction, for our correction, reproof, and instruction in righteousness, Lord, help us to learn it. We want to be all that You have called and equipped us to be. Lord, as we grow as a church family, let us not be found holding back the power of God. Help us, Lord to be the instruments who are finely tuned and ready at Your service. We humbly acknowledge, Lord, that we have 
lots of room to grow as individuals, as a church family. And we joyfully acknowledge that Your grace desires and will accomplish that growth in us until we see Jesus. The good work that You have begun in us and our church family, You will finish it. Thank You, Lord. We look forward to what You'll do through the power of Your Word and Your Spirit right now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When looking at these verses, you don't need me to tell you that God was doing something awesome that day. So let's walk through this text a verse at a time and see what we can learn. Verses 41 and 42 again. They give us some perspective into the rest of the chapter. Verse 41 says, So then those who had received His Word were baptized, and that day were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. There are two points in these, these two verses that lay a foundation for the rest of the chapter. Number one is that people were being genuinely saved. We cannot miss this point in the text. I have no doubt that many of you share my concern that there are surely many more people than we realize attending church these days who are not genuinely saved. They're somewhat religious, but they're not Spirit-empowered. They attend church, but they aren't the body of Christ. As a pastor, as a, as a shepherd, an under-shepherd, it is my duty to do everything possible to ensure that people understand what it means to be a genuine Christian. What it means to have a life-changing forgiveness of sin and the freedom to live for God. These are things that we cannot assume or take for granted in those around us. It's too important to take a spiritually educated guess when it comes to salvation, both for ourselves and for others. The reality is that churches across this country are to some degree part of the mission field, including ours. There are young ones, young children in our family who need to experience the reality of the Gospel. Surely there are some of our older children that need it. And assuredly, we have adults who are still sincerely wrestling with this profound truth of what it means to be a follower of Christ empowered by the, by the Holy Spirit. What it means to be a disciple. One of the redeemed. Everything following in verses 43-47 to 47 don't matter. They don't apply. They don't truly happen if verse 41 doesn't happen. We're talking about authentic salvation. Through and through. Complete salvation. A genuine, born-again spiritual conversion that fully places one into the family of God. Resulting in an undoubted indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And as Scripture, like the Gospels and the book of Romans, teach us, that miracle only comes by genuine repentance. That is a massive, God-empowered turning from self and sin to a deep and sincere faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. There's a Holy Spirit-led understanding that what Jesus did on the cross and in the resurrection is the only way the only truth, the only life. No one gets to heaven. No one gets to the presence of God without going by faith through Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God. We see these truths in John 14.6. So the first observation we make here is that we are looking at a group of people who have experienced genuine and complete salvation. Secondly, none of verses 43 to 47 apply. None of them truly happen by the power of the Spirit in their fullest if verse 42 is also not happening. If you or I remove devotion to the Word of God from our lives, we have no business asking, let alone expecting, God to pour out the super blessings of verse 43 to 47 upon us and our church family. But if we do devote ourselves to the Word, the sky's the limit. Heaven's the limit, actually. 
is we devote ourselves to true Christian fellowship, heaven's the limit of what God might do in us and our church family. As we faithfully devote ourselves to the Lord's table and all that that means, surely that's why Paul said, we preach Christ crucified. That's devotion to the Lord's table. And not just the act of it, but the heart of it. When the cross means the world to us, when what God did through Jesus significantly impacts our thoughts, our emotions, our faith, our belief, our choices, our relationships, our endeavors in life, when we are that devoted to the cross, there is no limit to what God might do. And all the same is true of prayer. Real, living, honest, Holy Spirit-enabled communication with God our Heavenly Father. We looked at those four ingredients last Sunday in our study titled, Continue. No matter what comes of this pandemic, in the ensuing economic hardship, no matter what our new cultural norm is going to look like, believers will still be called to continue through it in the faith. That calling never changes. And now today we come to the text, verses 43 to 47, which are largely the result of continuing in the fundamentals of the faith. The prerequisites of verses 41 and 42 lead to the joys of verses 43 to 47. Show me a church that is passionately and continually devoted to doctrine, fellowship, communion, and prayer, and I will show you a happy church family. A truly happy church family. Now let's be clear, there are no perfect churches, quote-unquote, this side of heaven. We know that. But there are happy churches. There are biblical churches. There are effective churches. And these verses that we're about to study give us no less than nine attributes of a healthy, happy church family. These are really nine fruits of devotion. So let's dive in. Here's the first one. Holy amazement. Number one, holy amazement. Verse 43 says, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Let that sink in. What a reality for a church family to have. This word awe here is much more than the casual use of awesome that we often use today. Wasn't that awesome? When in reality, it was just a movie. It's not even real. It wasn't that awesome. When in reality, reality, all the guy did was catch a football in the end zone. Now this verse is speaking of the reverential fear of the Lord. It's an amazement that is humbly, humbly accompanied by the utmost respect for power. The word in the Greek can also be used for terror and dread. Now, of course, that's not the specific use of the word that we have in our text today. The church isn't cowering in the corner hoping that God won't hurt them. This is the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom a fountain of life, a solid basis for confidence, as the Proverbs teach us. This is an awe that is swept up with the greatest heights of humility and respect and worship. It's an awe that brings us to our knees before the Lord. It comes when we realize that we are standing before the holy God of the universe. Remember, God is not our buddy. Church is not our clubhouse. The Scriptures are not a good book of tips for good living. Secular Christianity, if I could call it that, has become so casual with all things divine that it has subsequently diminished the true awesomeness of the Almighty. When a person is truly devoted to the faith, One of the fruits, one of the evidences is that they just can't stop feeling a sense of awe. Not just in who God is, but as we see in the text here also, in what God is doing. 
They stand in awe of the power of God. The verse specifically also says that everyone was feeling it. That's a thought for a church family right there. Not just the pastors, not just the Sunday school teachers, everyone. There was widespread fear of the Lord. They were all of the opinion that God is their ultimate authority. God is their ultimate source of strength. Their ultimate source of truth. God is awesome and He is doing something great right now. The verse also notes that they kept feeling it. This speaks to the continuity of their fear of the Lord and their amazement at what He is accomplishing in and through them. Have you ever noticed that it can be easier to fear the Lord on Sundays when we're at church studying the Word, sharing testimony, etc.? But when midweek comes and we haven't read our Bible for a few days and haven't had fellowship with other believers and we've somewhat drifted from godly living, it's easier to have less fear of the Lord. That will never be the case in a truly happy church family. There's a consistency to their fear of God. Let's look at fruit number two. It says frequent miracles. The verse continues to say, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. There is no mistaking it. This is talking about things like healings and speaking in tongues. And I cringe to say it, but even an instance of striking people dead who flagrantly sinned against God in the church. These were mind-blowing, supernatural miracles proving the authority and the power of the apostles' doctrine, the message of the gospel, the truth of the new covenant. And God in His mercy knew that people would need to be convinced. And history clearly records that for a short season, God used miraculous powers that were bestowed very clearly upon the apostles and a few others who were very close to them. Now let's step back and very quickly put signs and wonders in some context. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 9. This teaches us the big picture of signs and wonders. Matthew chapter 9, verse 2 begins, They brought to Him, that is Jesus, a paralytic lying on a bed. That is a man who was paralyzed. And seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. And some of the scribes said to themselves, this fellow blasphemes, speaking of Jesus. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Which is easier? To say, your, sons are your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, then He said to the paralytic, get up, pick up your bed and go home. And He got up and went home. But when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and glorified God who had given such authority to men. Here's the key question. Why did Jesus do signs and wonders like healing this lame man? It was, it was so that people would know He has authority on earth to forgive sin. This is huge. Jesus did miracles so people would know He was the Messiah the Son of God, the Redeemer foretold. Jesus didn't just heal so the man could walk again. He didn't feed 5,000 people just so they wouldn't have to pay for their own lunch. And the apostles didn't just heal so people could be healthy. And yes, next Sunday, Lord willing, we're going to look at a miracle in Acts 3. The stunning account of Peter healing a lame, lame man and everything that went down right after that. It's a spectacular account. But none of these wonders happened for the sake of the miracle itself. They happened because they were a what? A sign. A sign. And what is the purpose of a sign? It points people in the right direction. That's it. I talked about this with my kids this week. 
And we all agreed that if we were going to go to Disneyland and we were traveling south and we saw a sign that said Disneyland 500 miles, we would not stop and hug the sign. We wouldn't spend the day playing around the sign. We wouldn't want to spend the night at the sign. We'd want to get where the sign was pointing. The value of the sign isn't the sign itself. It's what it points to. Why did people in the first century need signs and wonders? Well, for one, they didn't have the New Testament. The apostles' letters were just being written and circulated, especially at this point in Acts 2, since this is only day one of the New Testament church. No one had a complete copy of the New Testament as we have it today. Here's the difference between us and them. We have the ultimate sign. The Word of God. We're loaded with signs that point us where we need to go and lead us to everything we need to know. We also have the Spirit with us pointing us where we need to go and revealing everything we need to know. Not only do we have the sign of the Word, we also have a multitude of witnesses today. There are millions of transformed lives that prove the efficacy and the veracity of the Gospel. Think about it. In Acts 2, there were no churches outside of Jerusalem. There were no witnesses in the surrounding cities and regions and nations. They needed a sign and God gave it to them for a very short season by way of mind-blowing physical miracles. Now, we're not going to go into a deep study of the biblical history of the early church signs and wonders, but we cannot help but notice that in very short order, even the apostles themselves stopped talking in their latter epistles about things like supernatural healings and the gift of speaking in tongues, foreign languages that proclaim the mighty deeds of God and can be understood by others in those languages. All of the evidence points to a limited season of supernatural, at-will power being given to individuals to authenticate the Gospel. Now all of that said, is God still doing miracles? And the answer is, He's doing even greater miracles. It's vital that God's people recognize this. Evaluate with me. What's the greater miracle? Healing someone so they can walk for the rest of this life or forgiving someone of their sins so they can be rescued from an eternity in hell and walk in heaven forever. When you put it in terms like that, the answer is not only that salvation is better, it's way better. It is immeasurably better. We're comparing a pebble to a mountain here. The question is almost ridiculous. What about when God takes a marriage that was about to be divorced and He changes a person from the inside out and the marriage is not only healed, it's better than ever. If you had to choose between the ability to walk or a lifelong, joyful, God-honoring marriage, what would you choose? Without hesitation, I would choose the joyful marriage. I'm old enough to recognize the superb value of a joyful marriage before God. And the truth is, God is healing relationships all the time. He is going beyond the body, which He can still heal, and He does heal at times miraculously, but God has gone beyond the body to the soul. We see our Lord and Savior repeatedly give hope and peace that defies understanding during some of the hardest times in life, during some of the greatest losses. That is a massive miracle every time it happens. When a relationship is healed by the truth of God's Word and the power of His transforming grace, that is a superior miracle than one being given the ability to walk, the ability to see, the ability to hear, a cure of cancer. The changing of the heart is immeasurably superior. 
When a person walks away from self and puts all their faith in Christ as Lord and Savior, that is a miracle of eternal magnitude. So we see that although the miracles are different today, God is still doing wonders in people's lives. He is doing wonders in churches all around the world today. And when He does, joy fills the church. Let's look at the third fruit of devotion. Kindred spirit. Verse 44 says, And all those who believed were together. The Apostle Paul said in Philippians 2.2, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. It was the togetherness in the church that made Paul's joy complete. Togetherness in a church family was the icing on the cake for Paul. And rightly so. Colossians 3.14 refers to love and the perfect bond of unity. We're looking at the perfect relationship. In a very real sense, relationships are everything. Our relationship with God is everything. And that spills over into the relationships we have on this earth. There was a oneness in Acts 2, the Acts 2 church. And we're looking at how it was displayed through all of these evidences, all these attributes, all of these fruit of devotion. Here's fruit number four. Godly stewardship. Verse 44 continues, it says, and had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. If you jump ahead to chapter 4 in Acts, Mark read these verses earlier, I loved it. Verses 32 to 34, you see that what we have in Acts 2 is not a misprint. Acts 4 goes into even more detail. It says, And the congregation of those who believed, so we're talking about genuine Christians, were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own. That totally obliterates the word mine. But all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and abundant grace was upon them all. I read that thought. Boy, if I had to pick a name for a church right now, right now, today, for a brand new church, perhaps I would pick something like Abundant Grace Bible Church. What a marvelous thought for the people of God. As they were devoted to Him, to the elements of faith, abundant grace was upon them all. It continues, For there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet and they would be distributed to each as any had need. Now for us to appreciate and understand this kind of unusual behavior, we have to put it in context. As we observed when we studied the start of chapter 2, there was a major Jewish festival happening. What was it? Pentecost. This is the, the pilgrim festival called Shavuot in Hebrew. It's also known as the Feast of Harvest or, and the Feast of Weeks as it was seven weeks after Passover. It was seven weeks after the exodus from Egypt. And now it was seven weeks after Jesus' death. This is one of three holidays where Jewish men from around the known world were to travel to Jerusalem to celebrate and to worship. So here you have this major influx of Jews, major influx of travelers from all directions, likely tens of thousands of people pouring into the city. And the Holy Spirit, knowing exactly what was going on, came at the most opportune and divinely appointed time. And by the end of the day, the New church, Testament church was birthed and grew to over 3,000 people. Undoubtedly, this included both locals and travelers. Many travelers. And if the Holy Spirit was doing this kind of unprecedented work, and miracles were being performed, and thousands were hearing a radical, life-changing gospel for the first time, 
then no one would be racing to get out of the city and get back home. They'd be desperate to stay and learn as much as possible from the apostles. They would be hanging on every word preached. And many of the local believers, recognizing the unprecedented and most critical work of God that was happening in that moment, gladly began selling their possessions, began selling even their lands and homes to help accommodate the thousands of believers who were now filled with the Holy Spirit and needing food and lodging in Jerusalem. The work of God was so powerful that the people of God readily shared of their resources to support God's work. And that is one of the signs of a happy church family. That is one of the signs of a God-blessed church. When people recognize that God is doing something significant, they want to be a part of it. They pour themselves into it. Here's some more context for what was going on here. Many scholars and theologians point out three things. One, this was voluntary behavior. This was not communism. We find nothing in the text or anywhere in the New Testament that leads us to believe that the apostles were demanding the people do this. It was voluntary. Secondly, not everyone sold their property and homes. I mean, if you look just a verse or two later, we see that they were going to go to each other's homes for fellowship. So clearly, some people had homes still. And we see this in places throughout the rest of the New Testament as well. Thirdly, we never see this kind of unparalleled sharing again. This is never recorded in the church again. There was something very unique happening. But the grand scale of what we see going on here provides a very clear principle that when God is doing great things, His devoted people love to get involved. And part of getting involved means sharing and supporting one another in the spread of the Gospel. It's that simple. It's one of the great privileges of being part of the body of Christ. Sharing is one of the most beautiful things in the world. Think about this. When a little child takes their donut and pulls it in apart and gives half to another friend sitting next to them, doesn't that just warm your heart? Now granted, I've never seen that happen. But I'm sure if it did, it would be very sweet. Now seriously, when the body of Christ sacrificially shares with each other, that is one of the true tests and true evidences that God is doing something marvelous in their midst. As we saw in chapter 4, the church had a distinct understanding of it's not mine. That's why I titled this point, Godly Stewardship. It's not just sharing what's mine. It incorporates also an understanding that none of it is mine. It is God's and it is for God's glory, for His work. This is so contrary to human nature, this mind principle. I had to read the verse in chapter 4 two or three times just to make sure I read it correctly again. Not one of them claimed that anything belonging to Him was His own. My family, and I share this carefully, but my family received an anonymous care package about a week ago. You know, I think that was God just touching my heart in a very personal way for today's sermon. So I brought this big box into the middle of the kitchen and I set it up on the island and all the kids jumped up on stools to watch me, except Leo, no stool for Leo. As soon as I opened this box up, all of the kids cheered. Do you know what that did for their faith? And they probably don't even realize it. The impression that must have made on their heart and soul of what it means to share. Now granted, I think they cheered when they saw the fudgesicles, but still, someone shared. And it so inspired our family to share as well. And I happen to know that that kind of sacrificial sharing is happening all throughout our church family, especially during this quarantine. 
It's happening beyond our church family. God has been so good to His people. Why not share? That's part of true fellowship. Sacrificial sharing for the sake of the Gospel. You'll find it in every truly happy church family. Here's fruit number five of devotion. Biblical worship. Verse 46 says, Day by day, they were continuing with one mind in the temple. There is only one unity possible in Christian doctrine and worship and fellowship. That is biblical worship. Bible-centered worship. Bible-centered fellowship. The key question isn't what kind of music do we all like? Or how casual or formal should we dress on Sundays? Praise God for diversity in personality. But that personal preference, those tastes and distastes, are not what bring one mind to the people of God. It's Christ. Every mind is focused on Christ and His Word. One mind, one thought, one truth. Until Christ returns and takes the church home, we will forever need to diligently devote ourselves to one mind, the mind of Christ. That's a daily devotion that's required. A daily commitment. A daily discipline. Because we will forever be tempted by the natural man to get hung up on things that don't really unite in the first place. If we're all here because the drums aren't so loud... That's a very poor foundation for a church. If we're here because there's enough personalities and backgrounds and ethnicities like us, that is not going to hold us together. The mind of Christ takes people from everywhere on the spectrum and defies their personality and background differences with the overpowering unity that is found in Christ in His Word, in His mission. And a happy church family is one that continues with one mind in the temple. We worship Christ alone according to the Word alone. Let's look at fruit number six. Joyful hospitality. 40, verse 46 continues, it says, And breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. This point on hospitality could be a study all in itself. A happy church family is one that regularly gathers together outside the four walls of their big building. They open their homes. Why? Because that's what you do for family. That's what we do for friends. My home is your home. My meal is your meal. We are here to take care of each other, to nurture and encourage one another, especially and particularly for the proclamation of the gospel. I am absolutely convinced that one of the secret ingredients to genuine and joyful fellowship is hospitality. Hospitality breaks down social barriers. It breaks down difference of, it, a difference of backgrounds. It blossoms new friendships when they were least expected. I, and I know many of you have experienced that. You made the decision to, decide, to, to invite someone over, someone perhaps newer in the church family you didn't know very well. You had them over and you go, my goodness, what a friendship was waiting this whole time. Joyful hospitality blossoms new friendships. It ministers grace in a very unique and personal way. As a point of application, may I lovingly ask, when was the last time you and I opened our home to others in the church for a meal together? Well, hopefully it's been at least five weeks. But besides that, seriously, is the door of our home open to others? Is the porch light on? This is one of the reasons I find our salt groups to be so vital to church health. Every week, five families, no less than five families, open their front door and welcome their church family in. When possible, it's for a meal or for a snack. 
But I don't think the secret is in the food. The secret is in the spirit of the matter, the spirit of the principle. It's the open door. It's the sincere welcome. It's the desire to serve others and sacrificially share what God has so kindly given to us. The focus in the, in the verse isn't the food. It's the gladness and sincerity of heart. We see this principle in the account of the poor widow. You may recall this one where she, she gave her offering, which in today's currency, as best I could figure it out with the studies and the various resources I had, would be the equivalent of about two or three bucks. She walked in and she put a couple dollar bills in the offering box. You've heard me say before how much I marvel at the fact that in a very unique way, Jesus called for his disciples and he basically said, come here, I want you guys to see this. This is a true offering. And he pointed at the widow. Mark 12, 41, look it up later. The principle is true here in Acts 2 as well. We open our doors regardless of square footage, regardless of how clean or how impressive the happy church family is one who opens their doors with gladness and sincerity of heart. It's that easy. Fruit number seven, we find jubilant exaltation. Verse 47 says, praising God. One doesn't have to dig very deep to find meaning here. The happy church is one who nonstop praises God. They are marked by regular jubilant exaltation. Every one of us should search our own hearts and ask, am I a jubilant believer? Am I known for being the kind of person who is just always praising God? This isn't rocket science. These are people who love to talk with great excitement about how good God is and what He's doing. Are you and, a people, you and I a people who are often heard speaking God's praises? Don't you just love being around people like that? You just know that when you see them, they're going to say something about how good God is. They're going to have a verse on the tip of their tongue that just, tongue that just lifted their heart that week. You can expect it from them. A, her, a, a happy church family is one that chiefly praises God. Now here's the caution for us in our particular study today. Quote, unquote, I love my church family should not be the chief message heard from discovery. Lest we miss the forest for the trees, this sermon isn't all about a happy church family. That's just one of the big trees in the forest. The sermon is about worshiping the God who made us and loves us and makes us part of His joyful family. I love it. Fruit number eight, we find good testimony. Good testimony. Verse 47 continues. It says, and they were having favor with all the people. Wow, that's quite a testimony. There is no doubt, though, that the world... The enemies of the cross will hate devoted followers of Christ. Jesus taught that truth. He warned His disciples of the cost of discipleship. He told us that the way is narrow and there will be few who find it. But can we be honest enough to say that a lot of Christians, including ourselves, often cause the disfavor that comes upon us it's not all God's fault, we could say. Sadly, Christians too don't have to try hard to be proud, to be impatient, to be judgmental, to be self-centered, to be opinionated, to be harsh and sharp-tongued. This is one more reason we need to devote ourselves to being at the foot of the cross. It's why we need to reflect on Jesus' own example in the Word. Isn't it amazing that although He was the Son of God, even though He had power like no other being on earth, He was still humble. He was still patient. He was kind. When He looked at groups of people, He was overwhelmed with compassion. He knew how to have meaningful conversation with sinners. 
He rarely exhibited a harsh tongue. And when he did, though, he did it right. Would you agree with me that if we were more Christ-like, we would have more favor in our community, in our homes, in our churches, in our neighborhoods. God give us more of that favor. So how do we get it? Do we just try harder? Try harder to be patient? Try harder to be kind? Well, no doubt, diligent effort is part of it. We, we saw that in the last two weeks. But surely the key is in verse 42. If we continually devote ourselves to the Word, the study and the obedience of it, and if we devote ourselves more and more to true fellowship, and if we faithfully fix our eyes on the cross and devote ourselves to talking often and with depth with God, He will do this great work of favor in us and through us and for us. Romans 12, 1 and 2 is so appropriately applied here. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable, there's, there's where you, that's where favor starts, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service, of worship. We can't forget that all we do is not just an act of righteousness. It's just not an act of moral obligation. It's an act of worship. Spiritual service is worship. In verse 2, do not be conformed to this world. That's the warning to believers. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is. That which is good and acceptable and perfect. God give us more righteous favor in the eyes of those around us. Here's the final aspect of a happy church family. It's something we all long for. It's something we all celebrate. We know it's one of the signs of a happy, healthy church. And that is, number nine, true growth. The last phrase of the chapter says, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who are being saved. What happens when verses 41 to 47a are put into devoted practice? The Lord builds His church. This verse is dripping with so much encouraging truth for us. For one, it's God who adds to the church. That is perhaps my greatest relief as a pastor. It's not, it's not and never will be my job to build this church. It's not the staff's responsibility. It's not the leadership's responsibility. Ours is to be devoted. God will build. Second, we see the day-by-day -day factor in the verse. We praise God for those who've been saved in the past, but we need more in the present and in the future or we ain't going to exist for long. We praise God for the marriages and relationships that He has healed in the past, but there are still others who are hurting. He's given many people victory from addiction, but there are still many who are chained to it. When we built this new auditorium 13 or so years ago, God filled it. But when the new facility is finished, Lord willing, we're going to have more seats. And as you can imagine, my mind is very aware of the responsibility to steward that new facility. Our church family is going to have a major responsibility when God entrusts this place to us, Lord willing. If you build it, they come. Could hardly be further from the truth. My only confidence going forward is this. If God leads us to build it, God will fill it. But it's not the head count that is being talked about in verse 47. It's the soul count. It very specifically says, those who are being saved. The verse could have, but does not say, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day. 
No, it says those who are being saved. My heart smiles when I see our attendance records go up, but my soul rejoices when even one is saved. Praise God, 11 o'clock last night, I got a text from someone in our church family who says, I believe, I confess, I am saved right now. <clears throat> That's God adding to our number day by day those who are being saved. Hallelujah. I know that our, our, our hearts long to see the Lord continue to add to the, our number day by day those who are being saved. That's His sovereign responsibility and we trust Him with it. He's not the problem. He'll have no trouble. We don't have to worry about God doing His part when we get into this new facility. You know what I mean? But it's our personal God-given responsibility that lies in the verses prior that we must diligently tend to. Will you and I devote ourselves more and more to the Word and fellowship, to the Lord's table and to prayer? If so, let us rest assured, God will build His church and a very happy church family we will be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is such an awesome picture of Your church that we have read today. Such an incredible, eternal thing happening in these verses. And it continued to happen 2,000 years later. And to think that You don't call us to build the church. You call us to be part of You doing it. In the greatest, truest spiritual sense, we get to go along for the ride and what a ride it is. You give such gladness to those who devote themselves to You. When there is sincerity, doors open wide and true fellowship happens. What we would all give for deeper friendships. Lord, You have provided it already. For one, we thank You for the generosity that we so many of us see and have even experienced in our church family. We thank You for the hospitality that goes around weekly in our church family. We thank You for how You've grown the church, how You've guided us all these years through Your Word. Lord, we beg You with great confidence, do not stop now. Continue Your great work in the name of Jesus Christ, Your Son, the Son of God. Continue that work until He returns. And may you and all those who look upon us see a truly happy church family. We pray this in our wonderful Savior Jesus' name and for His glory. Amen.